Straw Hut Media. According to research out of the University of Chicago, about 50% of Americans believe in at least one conspiracy theory. 19% believe 9-11 was an inside job. And 11% of people believe the government is mandating a switch to compact fluorescent light bulbs because the light bulbs make people obedient and easy to control. The pervasiveness of conspiracy theories might be surprising if you don't know that our very own revolutionary war was fueled in part by conspiracies spread by a certain founding father named Samuel Adams. He believed, among other things, that the British were secretly planning to enslave the American colonists in the same way that the colonists had enslaved black people. So conspiracies are not a 20th century phenomenon, and many of them are not as fringe as you may think. Today, we talk to Chelsea Weber-Smith host of the podcast American Hysteria, about one of the most persistent conspiracy theories of the 20th century, the gay agenda. Popularized by Joseph McCarthy in the 1950s and continued by the moral majority into the 70s and beyond, the idea was that there was this elite group of gay people who were plotting world domination. So where did this idea come from? And does it still exist? I'm Levi Chambers, and this is Pride. Hi, my name is Chelsea Weber-Smith, and I host a podcast called American Hysteria. My pronouns are they, them. Before we get into the gay agenda, let's learn a little more about Chelsea and their journey as a person in the LGBTQ community. Chelsea came into their queerness during the odds, while George W. Bush occupied the White House. There weren't these, at least to me, there weren't accessible terms really about gender variance. Uh, you could really either be gay or a lesbian, you know, or you could be bisexual, but that was its own, you know, joke of the moment on TV or whatever. And so I didn't start really think. I thought about my queerness. I came out as bisexual and then gay and all of those things. But my my gender was a much slower thing that evolved along with culture and around with um, LGBTQ trans culture. Uh, and as soon as I started hearing the term non-binary, which my God was really not that long ago, um, it resonated with me in a pretty serious way. Uh, but it was it was hard for me to take the plunge into using gender neutral pronouns because I tend to be someone who doesn't like um, confrontation. And I know that that's that's a sad thing, but when you tell someone your pronouns, say who's a baby boomer or someone a little bit older who doesn't have as much uh, access or interest in uh, the changing um, terms of the day, uh, I just, I hated that moment where someone would say, I don't understand that. Chelsea says that now, as they've grown older, they've also grown braver, partly because the term non-binary feels like such an accurate way to describe who they are. By God, I'm not a woman, um, and, and I'm not a man, um, but I'm somewhere possessing both of those qualities, which, I mean, I think everybody does, um, but just certain people to different extremes. And I decided that it was time for me to be brave and have those confrontations. It didn't happen overnight, though, Chelsea says. 
They figured out a way that they felt more comfortable having those confrontations and recognized that their gender wasn't the only way they occupied gray areas. It's just been, it's been really hard, but it's also matched up with my life and my work in that I really enjoy living in the gray area. And I think the gray area between both, you know, of our constructed genders is such a valuable place to live and such a valuable bridge between what seems like or what, you know, America teaches us are polar opposites. Um, and I love being genderqueer and uh, I, I just, uh, I get stuck up in some of the challenges for sure. Chelsea's podcast, American Hysteria, is a show that explores the fantastical thinking and irrational fears of Americans throughout history. Every episode is like an exploratory essay into a specific topic. They look at moral panics, urban legends, and conspiracy theories, and try to understand how these beliefs shape our psychology and culture, and explain why we end up believing them. We'll take something, say, Stranger Danger, that's our first episode, um, which is a moral panic in that we we freak out over this thing, you know, the, the dangerous kidnapping stranger, which is a very low risk for children, especially the suburban children who are taught, you know, through um, different programs that, that they're constantly going to be picked up off their bike and, you know, going home from school. Uh, the real damage is being done within family units, and uh, we are sort of distracting ourselves with with this panic and with this more sensational fear because we have a hard time dealing with our own nervousness over, you know, sexual abuse within our small communities. Chelsea will spend a few weeks learning everything they can to understand the origins of a certain moral panic or conspiracy theory. They'll trace it all the way back to the stories early American settlers told their children about indigenous people. They used to talk about and tell tall tales, basically urban legends meant to scare kids that that indigenous people were going to come and kidnap them and take them away. Right. Which is ironic, considering what um, colonists did to indigenous people. The show investigates how and why people come to take crazy ideas as facts, despite the lack of evidence. And then um, trying to break down these things that can seem funny on their surface or can seem ridiculous, like the Illuminati, and uh, find the really dark heart and the really dark history that often involves white supremacy, almost always, um, you know, gender issues and sexuality issues and class issues. Chelsea's interest in American conspiracy theories comes from their personal exposure to fantastical thinking. I come from an angle of, I was a previously an Illuminati conspiracy theorist um, via my father, who is also a 2012 uh, apocalypse prepper. Chelsea covers the 2012 apocalypse theories in the last episode of the first season of American Hysteria, The End of the World. And I even talked to my dad in that uh, episode about his what that was like and everything. The 2012 conspiracy, for those who need a refresher, was this idea that the world as we knew it would end on December 21st, 2012. That date was supposedly the last day of a 5,126-year-long cycle in the Mesoamerican Long Count calendar. It was where the Mayans stopped counting. The optimistic New Agers believed the date would bring the beginning of a new era in which Earth and its inhabitants would undergo a positive spiritual or physical change. Other, less optimistic people thought the date marked the apocalypse. 
they believed Earth would be sucked into a supermassive black hole, or it would collide with the mythical planet Nibiru. You know, we're supposed to go to a cabin on Mount Rainier and uh, save ourselves from the apocalypse that wasn't. And, uh, you know, I never I never bought in fully. But as you can imagine, it, it was it was in the back of my mind a lot. Chelsea says growing up near the intense, fantastical thinking of their dad and even to a lesser extent, their mom shaped the way they viewed the world. You know, even my mom was interested in things like what's hidden under the Vatican, you know, and uh, these different Ways of thinking that I was so obsessed with, and I'm still really obsessed with, like urban legends and all that, but now it's more about not what are they, but why are they? Um, and that comes straight out of uh, me trying to sort of deal with and, and make something useful out of, out of those odd experiences. When we come back, Chelsea takes us through the gay agenda. Welcome back. Before the break, we talked to Chelsea about their experience living in the gray area, both as a non-binary person and as an investigator into fantastical thinking on their podcast, American Hysteria. We'll start our exploration of the gay agenda the same way Chelsea does on the podcast, with a bizarre and super popular British kids show. Do you remember Tinky Winky's gay conspiracy? The Teletubby. Yeah, Tinky Winky the Teletubby. The Teletubbies is a British preschool children's TV series that focuses on four multicolored creatures with television screens on their bellies. Each of the different Teletubbies is a different color, with a different shape on their head, and they communicate in gibberish. They run around idyllic grassy knolls, and the sun is a baby. It's a bizarre show. And yes, they're still making it. Tinky Winky was purple. He had the purple upside down triangle on his head, which, as we know, is a gay symbol or was in the past. And he also carried around a patent red leather purse. And that was his magical purse, right? So right away, there are some very heavy gay vibes, right? People made the connection a lot, actually, both abroad and in the U.S., When the show first aired in the UK in 1997, it quickly became popular with club kids and the gay community. English writers described Tinky Winky as, quote, the first queer role model for toddlers, and The Guardian even called him a gay icon. When the Teletubbies came to the US, gay gossip columnist Michael Musto took it even further. He said Tinky Winky showed kids, quote, not only that it's okay to be gay, but the importance of being well accessorized. You know, it was a great, it was so fun for queer people to say, oh my God, like there's there's someone here to look at, there's someone to guide children or something. But on the flip side of that, it terrified the moral majority. The moral majority was a political organization led by Jerry Falwell in 1979 that galvanized the blending of the Christian right and the Republican Party. Today, it feels like the two groups have been joined forever. But in reality, this was the beginning of a new era of moral and economic conservatism. It is a human rights issue, an issue that concerns the human rights of unborn babies who, by the hundreds of thousands, are being murdered. So Jerry Falwell saw Tinky Winky running through the hills with his red patent leather purse and decided to publish an article titled, Parents Alert, Tinky Winky Comes Out of the Closet. 
he said to have little boys running around with purses and acting effeminate and leaving the idea that the masculine male and the feminine female is out and gay is okay is something that Christians do not agree with, right? So it was immediately a gender panic, a gay panic. For context, the Tinky Winky scandal was happening in the late 90s, 30 years after America was starting to make some progress towards equal rights. That sparks a lot of changes that are positive. A lot of legislation goes through to help homosexuals and to protect people and to give more rights and to, you know, stop some of the abuses. Unfortunately, every time there's a movement forward, there's an accompanying backlash. So fast forward eight years after Stonewall. In steps Anita Bryant. And she is, oof, she is a woman who was the Florida Orange Juice Company spokeswoman. And she was a very outspoken, lovely Christian woman, as you might imagine. Just biologically, that God made mothers so that we could reproduce. Homosexuals cannot reproduce biologically, but they have to reproduce by recruiting our children. In addition to being the spokesperson for Florida Citrus Commission, Anita Bryant was also second runner-up to Miss America in 1959, and a popular singer with several gold records. She sang at Lyndon Johnson's funeral in 1973, and readers of Good Housekeeping magazine voted her the most admired woman in America in the 1970s. She also happened to be very anti-gay. So there was a a bill being passed in Dade County, Florida, very famous bill by several gay men to to get some protections um, and allow, you know, get some chances to teach in schools and not be barred from work and all those different things. And when Anita Bryant caught wind of that, uh, she was super pissed and really ready to make that her cause. So she started an anti-gay political coalition called Save Our Children. Within four weeks of hearing of the gay rights bill, she had collected 64,000 signatures, many more than the 10,000 she needed to put the issue on the ballot. And she won. Dade County voters rejected the ordinance by a vote of 69% to 31%. And it sparked this pretty serious and sudden focus and hatred on gay people. And so... That kept going as uh, the moral majority came into more and more power. And it's not an exaggeration to say that this issue, along with, you know, abortion and changes in women's rights, single handedly formed the moral majority as we know it now or the fundamentalist right who has political power. As we moved into the 80s, Anita Bryant and Jerry Falwell's movement really started ramping up the idea that there was an organized and concerted effort by gay people to take over the world and turn everyone gay. But this story goes actually all the way back to the days of communism and the fear of communism in the Cold War. During the early years of the Cold War, when the fear of communism was at its height, a Republican senator from Wisconsin named Joseph McCarthy led a series of trials and hearings that became known as the Red Scare. He believed that there were hundreds, if not thousands, of secret communist agents within the U.S. government, the military, and in Hollywood, and that they were plotting a hostile takeover. With the help of FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, the newly formed House of Un-American Activities started bringing people in in mass for questioning. Besides convicting some actual spies, McCarthy and J. Edgar Hoover disrupted the lives of thousands of Americans they believed were communist sympathizers. 
Imprisonment, blacklisting, phone tapping, all of this was commonplace. Meanwhile, a parallel movement also led by McCarthy and his cronies was taking place, the lesser-known Lavender Scare. Which was um, a ejection of queer people from, jo- you know, government jobs, school jobs, things like that, just like the Red Scare was, but it, it was a greater number of people were fired during the Purple Scare. The concept of the gay agenda is closely intertwined with the mass hysteria surrounding communism during the Cold War. Communist leader Vladimir Lenin founded an international organization whose mission was to spread communism throughout the world by any means necessary. He called this group the Communist International, or the Comintern. There's an interesting thing I love to talk about here, and it's called the Comintern, and this is a an idea that there is a secret society of gay people that are trying to take over the world. See the connection? Comintern, Hominturn. Now, the word Hominturn came about before the Red Scare and was likely coined as a kind of joke by members of a group of gay creatives and intellectuals that hung out during the 1930s. But the word resurfaced decades later. Which then was taken very seriously by people during the Cold War who were afraid of not only a communist takeover, but a gay takeover. Another contributor to the rise in paranoia around the gay agenda was the work of American biologist and sexologist Alfred Kinsey. Who then was saying, there's one out of ten people are gay, and gay people don't have to be, they don't have to be men who are extremely feminine, they don't have to be women who are extremely masculine, anybody can be gay. Kinsey also said that sexuality was not binary, but instead existed on a spectrum. It's what we call the Kinsey scale. The scale goes from zero, exclusively heterosexual, to six, exclusively homosexual. So Kinsey's work being published in the late 1940s and early 1950s coincided perfectly with the Red Scare. This fear of homosexuality persisted even through the gay liberation movement. And so once we get to the 80s, once we get to Reagan and we get to Bush and we see the AIDS crisis and we see all of these different horrors happening, everybody's just sort of turning a blind eye. And a lot of that came from this desire to either forget that homosexuals existed or oppress homosexuals for existing, and that really came out of the idea that you could catch being gay, right? That being gay wasn't something you were born with, it was something that you were influenced into. After the AIDS crisis killed thousands of people and Reagan and Bush just sort of allowed it to happen, um, possibly purposefully in some ways, also because people like Jerry Falwell, who I mentioned earlier, you know, said that that it was the gay plague and that it was God's punishment against gay men for their sins, which is one of the most horrific moments in modern American history, I think. The idea people had, Chelsea says, was that if we didn't talk about it, it wouldn't exist. If kids didn't know about gayness, they wouldn't, as the moral majority would say, be turned gay. And that's why we still see to this day protests over Tinky Winky, because it's specifically this idea that the gay agenda targets the young. And that the young, just like any, you know, any conspiracy would target the young because they're like the the growing soldiers, you know. And so, and it also is that, I mean... 
there's no moral panic really without like, oh, the children, we must save the children. Throughout this entire time period, from the 50s all the way into the 90s and today, people theorized about the gay agenda. Psychiatrist Frederick Wortham wrote a book in 1954 called Seduction of the Innocent, in which he claimed that Batman and Robin were gay together and that Wonder Woman was a power lesbian. And it was all part of a huge plot to subvert American youth. And uh, all of these these things that repeat. I mean, we even saw it recently when adorably Mr. Ratburn of Arthur married a man um, or a male animal. I can't remember what animal it was, but people, you know, they, they freaked out again about that. And it, it all has to do with the kids. It all has to do with teaching the children, whether that be stories of, of, you know, rampant molestation or, you know, teachers being, influencing children into a gay lifestyle, um, which of course we all know is is completely ridiculous, but that's that's the heart of the gay agenda. When we come back, the gay agenda in the modern age. Welcome back. Before the break, Chelsea took us through the history of the gay agenda in America, from the Lavender Scare during the Cold War to the moral majority of the 1970s and its movement into the tinky-winky scandal of the late 90s. Now, even in 2020, the paranoia remains. Especially as we start hearing these conspiracies come back with the Trump administration, um, things like the Illuminati that is now renamed the Deep State, and um, you hear... I feel like we hear the gay agenda still. We hear the homosexual conspiracy. We hear this idea that there is some kind of organizational, like, purposeful, (laughs) I just, I almost can't say it, like a purposeful manipulation by the homosexual elite, right? That's another great buzzword is the elite who are somehow controlling Hollywood, controlling politics, controlling economics, linked in with, you know, this Jewish cabal that's also trying to take over the world when really what it is, is just a growing sense of inclusion that terrifies people who benefit from the status quo. Still, Despite the continued and constant backlash from the religious right, there is more support now for queer kids in the U.S. than ever before. It seems to the moral majority that the gay agenda is winning, right? And um, that's not a bad thing um, because the gay agenda has never been to actually take over the world. The gay agenda has been, I mean, when you talk about it from a gay, queer, trans, non-binary point of view... I think generally speaking, it's just the hope that we can have as much respect as straight people and no longer uh, feel so out of place and so lonely and no longer be made to feel that we are other, you know, and disgusting and, and sometimes worthy of death, right? Chelsea says that creating a conspiracy about gay people trying to take over the world is a way to make hating gay people easier. That's a big thing is the justification of violence by by demonizing the other. Right. You don't just hate gay people because they're gay. You hate them because they're part of a conspiracy, because they're coming after your children, because they're rotting American values. It's not that way you can make an enemy out of somebody and, and justify doing to them whatever you want. 
the newly re-empowered ultra-conservative voices that came to power in the 1970s with Anita Bryant, Jerry Falwell, and Phyllis Schlafly has continued on. Now the voices with the majority of the American Conservative Party headed by Donald Trump seem to be getting louder and louder. And so when we're in the middle of a culture war, which we are in the middle of one of the biggest culture wars, I think, in American history, and they're going to pull out all the stops. They already are. They're pulling out all the stops. Abortions back on the table, something decided from the 70s. Gay rights are back on the table, something decided, you know, under Obama, like all these things, all of these scapegoats, you know, Black Lives Matter now is is scapegoated as a terrorist organization. And there's just these these extreme ideas coming back. And it all has to do, it seems, again, with this this secret organization. Having this show in this moment is fascinating because every time I do an episode, it's like something happens that that illuminates what I'm working on. And the Obama administration, that was that was a good time, man. You know, I mean, it's it had its problems, it had its issues, but I don't think we could have ever in our wildest, wildest dreams imagined that we would be where we are right now politically. Now, it seems that both sides of the political spectrum are experiencing this paranoia. The left fear things like the Koch brothers' long-planned takeover of the American political conversation to move it further and further right with the help of a secret society of millionaires. And the right have a lingering fear that universities are institutions controlled by the liberal elite to brainwash young people. Um, And I think one side, (laughs) I think the left experiences a little bit more legit paranoia than than the the right. But as mentioned, you know, the right feels certain power slipping away, um, away from white men, let's just say it, you know, um, and power slipping away from from the affluent white male who's always been the one who benefits from the oppression of everyone else. And so once that starts getting shaken up by, oh, I don't know, a black president, you know, we're, we're having this pushback where he wants to make America great again. What does that mean? That means going back to the 1950s when gay people were hospitalized and black people were not allowed to go to school. You know, it was like you're hearkening back, hearkening back to this this American fantasy that is basically a fantasy of oppression for everyone else. And the only way it seems to do that is to make enemies out of the more vulnerable people by acting like they are the ones trying to take over the world and control everything when it really does feel like it's the other side that that is doing that politically. It does feel like it's transitioned from being the gay agenda to now it's like the trans non-binary agenda Mm -hmm. that's the really scary thing you know from like the trans military ban things like that it does seem like it's shifted almost like okay we've gone down this path where okay gays and lesbians fine we'll accept them right the trans people absolutely not you know yep absolutely it's like it's evolving and it's the same thing with like non-binary i can't tell you how many people we get comments where on the pride instagram where it's about an episode could be about gay pirates and we'll have tons of comments there are only two genders or if i had a dollar <laughs> for every gender i'd have two dollars and it's stupid things right 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 so it yeah. does feel like the political climate has shifted it and now it's about trans and non-binary people 
Yep. And you know what? It is to me that is just the same. It's about supremacy. And it's about the idea that if we have two genders, then one of them gets to rule over the other. And that is pure American history at its core, right? And so when you start mussing around, like when you start blurring the categories of power, people freak out. And I think that it's just a scary thing for people to face, even if they don't understand why they're scared, because what it does again is it shakes up the status quo. It changes the landscape of gender. That landscape has had to go through many different seasons throughout American history. From when the Puritan settlers first observed the existence of third and fourth genders in indigenous people and decided it didn't belong in their America. And there are direct quotes that I found from Puritans and colonists that said things like, we're going to stamp out this behavior. Like, we are going to change the landscape of sexuality and of gender by violence. Chelsea says that the impetus behind that is likely the idea that having only two genders makes it easier for one to claim dominance over the other. And I think that as hard as it is for people to face, and people probably say mean stuff to me, it, it's it's a scary thing to change a structure that has been in place for so long and has benefited one half of our society so much and has, you know, been so painful and oppressive for the other half. Chelsea thinks the pushback against trans and non-binary people comes mostly from fear. When people find out I'm non-binary, there's immediately, more than anything, a fear, like a fear of messing up and getting my pronouns wrong and then offending me and then having to deal with being an offender. And, you know, right now in our in our Internet culture, people get called out in ways that scare them. So rather than try and fail, people instead choose a hard stance on the opposite side. And that's, again, I mean, that's making it about yourself, right? Um, Which we do a lot when we are afraid of being racist or we're afraid of being sexist or we're afraid of, you know, saying something offensive because the rise of PC culture has been quick and it's been, um, and there's, it's a culture war. So there's a lot of uh, intense emotions running high and, and in a culture war, what we're doing is we're reasserting new values and then the old values are gearing up to fight against that change, right? So we see these two forces of the far right and the far left battling it out. However, Chelsea says there's a big disconnect between the ways people fight these battles on the internet versus how they fight them in person. Being behind a computer screen creates a sense of safety that has two sides. There's the dark side, the bullies, the trolls, the death threats, the nasty comments. And then there's the other side. The internet is a place where people can demand equality and respect more safely than they can in person. We have this this ability to to ask for what we've always wanted and needed and also say, hey, if you don't come along with us, if you don't evolve with us, then you're not going to be part of this anymore. You're not going to be, you know, you're not going to be part of the social changes and you're not going to be invited into spaces or conversations because you're not trying to catch up. All of these differing beliefs held by people within and outside the LGBTQ community are, in the end, shaped by the way we move through the world. They're influenced by the stories we hear about power and violence and safety. 
To learn more about the gay agenda and other urban legends and conspiracy theories, make sure you check out Chelsea's podcast, American Hysteria. You can find American Hysteria on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast and then myself at Chelsea Weber Smith. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Amer Hysteria and then Facebook at American Hysteria Podcast. But Instagram is really where we do most of our stuff. Season three premieres on February 17th. So you have a little time to catch up on seasons one and two. And you can subscribe to American Hysteria on Apple, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find it. So make sure you subscribe and come and listen to the rest of our episodes. We have plenty more than just the gay agenda. Pride is a production of Straw Hut Media. If you like the show, leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're tuning in from. Share us with your friends, subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Pride. You can follow me at Levi Chambers. Pride is produced by me, Maggie Bowles, and Ryan Tillotson. Edited by Sebastian Alcala. Well, now I want to know what's under the Vatican. Uh, I don't know. Gnostic gospel (laughs) Bible stuff.